This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. This is case number nine in the Blue Cliff Record, Chow Cho's Four Gates, the preface to the koan. In the bright mirror on its stand, beauty and ugliness are revealed. With the sharp sword in hand, one can kill or give life to fit the occasion. A foreigner comes and a native goes. Life is found in death, death in life. If you have no eye to penetrate the barrier, no freedom to turn about, you'll be lost on the way. Tell me, what is the eye that penetrates the barrier? What is the freedom to turn about? The case illustrates. The monastic asked Chaucho, What is Chaucho? Chaucho replied, East gate, west gate, south gate, north gate. The verse to this koan. The device is presented and the words come directly on. The adamantine eye is totally free of dust. East, west, south, north, the gates face each other. An endless round of hammer blows could not smash them open. I'm working with some of the koans in the Blue Cliff record, which is a collection of 100 koans. And many of the koans about, are about direct encounters between a practitioner, a monastic, and a master. Not all of them, but many of them are. And usually the practitioner has some degree of insight, but not always. Um, and also, usually they're stuck, but not always. Uh, and they're challenging. They're, they're asking real questions. Like, I hope we are asking real questions of ourselves and of our life. When I started working with Daito Roshi on koans, although I was an experienced koan student, he knew exactly where to find me exactly where to find the places I was stuck. Um, many, many years later, I found out that the teacher I'd been working with and completed my training in a different lineage, um, and this is many years later, uh, when I moved on to Zen Mountain Monastery, he told me he wrote Daito Roshi a letter. Um, and uh, there was some nice things said it. And some pointed things said, <laughs> heads up, Dadarushi. <laughs> um, but I don't think Dadarushi would have needed. In fact, I'm very confident he wouldn't have. It's kind of just one look. And uh, teachers tend to get students because uh, we reveal ourselves. Um, 
so when I started to work with them, and on an ongoing basis, over and over, I would stick in the same places. They weren't the same places to me. Um, but I would stick my personality, my conditioned responses, um, though invisible to me, were obvious to him, as they usually are to our teachers. Mostly he would just sit there, very patient, and respond to my offerings with keep working on it, and then <laughs> ring me out. Uh, he almost never gave me a hint. I'm trying to recall um, the times he, you know, pss, pss, nah. um, Other times, although I thought I was bringing in a completely new perspective to the koan, a real deep perspective, he would say, that's the same thing you said last time. And he would ring me out, and I would go out scratching my head. You know, that's a totally different thing I'm saying than last time. Um, But from the perspective of Dharma, it's stuck in the same place. It's just a a rewording of the same delusion. Uh, And we're good at that. You know, we reword our personality to fit every occasion that preserves our personality and our sense of self. We're terrific at that. Um, So he would leave me to see... I mean, he wouldn't say, um, how are we doing? (laughs) Okay. The mysteries of the... (laughs) Okay. He would leave me to see... Uh, how my newest expression, which I thought was a fresh new way of uh, expressing my insight into the koan, into myself, was somehow just a recapitulation of my habit of being me. Uh, And I really wasn't seeing it from a more fundamental level, from a more insightful level. I just keep returning to my limited views now expressed with different words. And that's our tendency. And eventually, it occurred to me, um, I can't keep doing these koans. um, Because after a while, sometimes he would pass me on them, feeling, well, I'm not going to see anything more. I mean, he didn't say that, but that was, I was getting that, that I hadn't really seen the koan. Clearly, maybe a little piece of it, maybe some hints of it, maybe I understood it intellectually, um, which I was good at. Um, but um, I think he felt, you know, we can spend the next three years on this and it's nothing more is going to happen until it happens, so let's move on. And um, the good thing about working on seemingly an endless number of koans is, you know, it always comes around and bites you in the backside eventually. Um, so, Or you see it when you get a chance to do it again or do a similar koan. And you've changed, and your perspectives have changed, and you've practiced longer, and things are different. Um, for various cir- reasons and circumstances with various teachers, I've gone through the Mumon Khan and the Blue Cliff Record two or three or four times, depending how you look at it. And every time I've done that, um, it's been completely different. How have I understood where I've been in practice? And understood the koan. And now when I give talks on it, it's another time through because I really have to be clear on the koan. I just don't sit down and write a talk. I mean, I have to sit with the koan and see into the koan. And I read other teachers' commentaries, some of which I feel are right on, some not so much. And I find how my understanding 
how that can be expressed so that we can all participate in this koan together. And yet I'm not um, giving you too much, uh, which doesn't help you. And I, actually, I can't give you too much in one sense. Um, so this is how koan study works. Um, and from our self-reflected sense of ourself, you can't see into the fundamental fundamental nature of reality in a specific manner that a particular koan is asking of us without actually seeing into it, without actually making a leap beyond ourself. Uh, and to see it from a non-dual perspective that the koan with which its specific set of circumstances is offering us. How you know, one sense is, so this dialogue, what the heck is this about? What is Chow Chow, East Gate, West Gate, North Gate? I mean, it makes no sense. It's nonsensical. Uh, but there's a context, of course. And um, the, the koans are, have commentaries, and they offer a context, so you can begin to work the circumstances. And it's no different than if someone took a tiny piece of a dialogue in your life, uh, no matter what it was, and took it out and printed it in a book and what? You know, I guess we do do that, right? On Facebook or whatever, or emails or uh, text messages or who knows what kinds of communication that I don't know about that are popular. Um, But there's a context, and the context is a very specific context uh, that the koan presents a very specific view that invites us to see things from a non-dual perspective, which is not the perspective we ordinarily live out of. And so for that koan to make any sense whatsoever, you have to be that non-dual perspective in the particulars of that koan. It's not a general statement. It's in the particulars of that koan. That just like when we walk down the street, there are particulars to walking down the street and the sidewalk and the people and the cars passing and the noise and you and what you're wearing. They're very particular. The set of circumstances of your life, moment after moment, are very specific to you. If we want to live in a, an awake life, we have to be present in the specifics, but not caught by the specifics. So to see into a koan is to make a leap. You can't get there from the same reference system that we usually operate on. And yet when you see into it, it not only makes complete sense, it's the only way that it, it seems to scream at you, to yell at you, to hold it up as an offering, that this is reality, this is how it is, or an invitation to see into reality. Every koan has a kind of a different angle on inviting us to, to wake up from a different perspective, and they're all different. Um, Daito Roshi, once we were driving together someplace, and he was driving as he always did, uh, just a little bit of a control freak. Um, and he was telling me about another student. Uh, that's interesting. He's telling me about another student uh, who could not give clear responses to koans. And every once in a while, would give a very clear, nice response. But generally, when she got stuck, she just couldn't turn it around. And I'm listening. And I thought about it a moment or two. And then I said, you know, that sounds a bit like me. And as I said, he was driving. He just turned towards me and he gave me the 
what we call in Brooklyn a fisheye. <laughs> and I went, duh. <laughs> yeah, who are we talking about here? You know, what's the, who's taking advantage of the opportunity to put their finger on me and, and offer something to me uh, that ordinarily I might not be receptive to? So the introduction to the cone invites us in. In the bright mirror on its stand, beauty and ugliness are revealed. The bright mirror on the stand, reality, it's your mind, the mind of the Buddha, that reflects the whole Dharma Dhatu, the whole foundational basis of reality is your mind. And it's reflecting. It's one of the perspectives of the Buddha. It's a perfect mirror that reflects all phenomena that you're experiencing, perfectly reflects it. No distortion whatsoever. It's not even a reflection. It is it. In the bright mirror on a stand, beauty and ugliness are revealed. For each of us, our self is always showing ourself. We're always revealing how we place ourselves in the situation, what we rest on, what we value, what we scorn. And not just in the obvious ways, in the subtle ways, in the way we move our body or hold our head or look or our facial expression or the summation of that in our body, mind, energy, as we take a step, as we breathe, as we sit zazen. It's all revealed. We may not realize this as we go about being ourself. But there's a lot more that we're communicating than just what we speak. In this practice, we are awakening to who we are beyond our acquired self. I mean, have you ever thought of the, your sense of yourself and personality and the way you tend to respond, which is um, sort of all-embracing? I mean, it's what we know, that that's acquired, that that's been kind of layered on, layer by layer by layer since before you were born, actually, but especially from the moment of birth and you're wah, wah, and what happens then? Layer after layer after layer after layer, endless layers plastered onto ourself. So deeply connected to our delusions and to our insights, to our understandings and to our places that we hold tightly onto is how we are in the world. And that manifests at this time in relationship to what is before us, around us, in us. It's always manifesting. There's no way to hide it. You know, hiding itself is obvious. You know, it's the sticking your head in the sand. And so this is the understanding we're cultivating. 
that practice and that insight realization that arises out of our practice will affect not only our body and mind, but all of those we're in contact with, in relationship with. Some of those relationships we're very aware of and others we're not aware of at all. That's by far the greater number of relationships. And it's, it's interesting to think that our thoughts and actions influence the world, greatly influence the world. And this is the bodhisattva path, that we're willing to take who we are. You know, it's easy to think of ourselves as a poor tool that doesn't have the ability to affect the world, but that is not the truth. It's a place of protection. It's a place it's within one of those layers that we've learned about, that we've been taught. And also it's easy to think, you know, to go the other extreme, that every, to be narcissistic. I can't think of any examples politically, but perhaps you could. You know, that it's all about you. So we're cultivating this. But when we, with intention, turns towards this practice, this is a bodhisattvic practice. Do we know what the fundamental vow of the bodhisattva is? That all other beings will come to complete, full realization before I do. And I will help that. That's a stunning vow that we take. Pretty stunning. And many times during the day, I call myself on that vow. I bring that vow up when my desire for something I can see is self-centered or selfish. And there's other possibilities. Usually those other possibilities have brought up that desire to be selfish, to not respond to those other possibilities. Because I don't want to. I'm lazy. It interrupts my flight plan, you know, whatever it is. But I do my best to turn towards the vow. And that's that's the practice. That's all of the practice. That's the practice of zazen, right? When your mind wants to wander within its corridors of fantasy or numbness or retreat or fear or planning, that's narcissistic. So what's your vow at that moment? Well, the vow is fulfilled. It's in the process of being fulfilled by seeing that and letting that go. Coming back just to the bare nakedness of your breath. And maybe you can't see how that affects everybody, but it does. That moment when you let it go and come back home, that's affecting the world. If you don't think so, ask Gautama. Gautama. So it's not enough, though, to see into this vow and to, to bring it up in my mind and to understand it. But we have to respond. We have to say or do something 
appropriate to the moment, which doesn't necessarily have to be a positive say or do. It could be a reframing from saying or doing. The, the key is not the action. The key is the awareness of how you'll uphold your vow, of what you'll actually say and do. And think. And so, you know, the self-hatred thoughts that are ever so subtle yet ever so present, the, dim- the diminishment of our self, of our capacity to realize ourself, which manifests in all of the myriad ways that we put ourselves down, How do we practice that from the perspective of saving all beings? Because to save all beings, you've got to start with yourself. If you're not practicing and realizing yourself. And it's not a contradiction to put others before, others' realization before yourself. Only a realized person will do that. Only a bodhisattva person will do that. Whatever degree of realization you're actively entwining into your life, which is not measurable, of course. There's no dial, no, no way to know that. We just practice and do the best we can. So the introduction goes on. A foreigner comes and a native goes. And this is the remarkable aspect to our practice. A foreigner comes. At the beginning of practice, we come and we're a foreigner. We're a foreigner to our own body and mind, to our own ideals, to our own authenticity. We're estranged from the fullness of our being. And again, not an all or nothing thing. I'm kind of presenting it in a linear way because that's the introduction, but it's not like that. It's a, uh, what's the kind of rock that comes out of the bottom of rivers? It's compounded. Like it's got a lot of different elements in it. Uh, there's a name for that, but maybe it's sedimentary rock, maybe. I don't know. Conglomerate rock. I don't know. Something like that. Earth science. Erasmus Hall High School, 1963. <laughs> but a native goes. We're walking into our own home when we're practicing to our own home. At last, living, doing, traveling, helping, home, doesn't matter where you are. It's irrelevant. Life is found in death, death and life. If you have no eye to penetrate the barrier, no freedom to turn about, you'll be lost on the way. Life is found in death, death and life. Free within living, free within dying. That's it. It's not a problem. Are these two things or are they one, living and dying? Questions like this will not impede you in the way. If you have no eye to penetrate the barrier, no freedom to turn about, you'll be lost on the way. Tell me, what is the eye that penetrates the barrier? What is the freedom to turn about? The case illustrates. (laughs) I was thinking back. um, There's some 
people who have been in residency for quite a while at the monastery, a couple of people who recently have really been struggling, really badly struggling with their life, with their relationship, with different circumstances, and the relationship to the practice, to the monastery. And at one point, I could really feel that anguish and kind of fundamental anxiety. And I could, it echoed in me. For the first time in a long, long time, I remembered what it was like to operate moment to moment out of anxiety, to operate out of a never-ending itchiness, and where you're, you're always, it's, it's like our chickens that are always pecking, you know. You're, you're always trying to, you don't know any other way to, you don't even know it's there to be free of it. It's just, you know, what, what your life is. And how painful that was. Although at the time, I didn't have a reference system. And I, I realized I hadn't felt that way in a long, long time. And I was very, very grateful to have that inner space, freedom, that, that wholeness. And of course, it's not that life doesn't bring plenty of anxiety and fears and moments that... Um, are challenging in many, many different ways. Life and death goes on. So monastic asked Chow Cho, what is Chow Cho? Chow Cho said, East Gate, West Gate, South Gate, North Gate. So this koan comes from uh, Tang, China, sometime during the 7th or 8th centuries. And what was customary is that a Zen master in Chacho was one of the greatest Zen masters. Um, realized himself initially when he was 19 and went on extended pilgrimages. So his story goes past his 70s. I don't remember the exact age, but he was very old when he settled down and started to teach. Uh, and in the meantime, traveled all around China, which was no simple thing and uh, met many masters and had many encounters, many of which are recorded. Um, so this great master. And so when a master would settle down and build a monastery, almost always near a mountain, they would take the name of the mountain as their name. And in this case, in Chao Cho's case, uh, he, he settled in a city. And the city name was Chacho, which was not his given name. But as a Zen teacher, as a Zen master, that's the name he took. And the city had stout walls for protection and four gates, obviously one in each direction. So the monastic is asking, you know, kind of a clever, wise guy question of Chacho, but a real Dharma question. You know, what is Chacho? So think about that, how, you know, if, if, you're, if you took the name of Brooklyn and someone said, what is Brooklyn? 
How, how would you dharmically answer that? You know, and nowadays with naming, that's not so far off. Um, so how would you answer that? And the answer hold at all. Think about that for a moment. In kind of an extended version of this koan in Daito Roshi's uh, 300 koan, Shobo Genzo, uh, he gives the koan this way. A monastic asked Chaucho, what is Chaucho? Chaucho said, East Gate, West Gate, South Gate, North Gate. The monastic said, I did not ask you about this. Chaucho said, you asked about Chaucho, didn't you? So he's given him another, another chance. So is Chaucho referring to himself or not? What is Brooklyn? Is it you or not? If he is referring to himself, what is he leaving out? If he's not referring to himself, what is he leaving out? Daito Roshi makes a comment on that extended case. The monastic is undeniably extraordinary, coming up to examine the tiger in his lair like this. Chaucho, however, is up for the task and sincerely shows him the whole thing. The monastic misunderstands and turning his back on Chaucho, looks to the city. He does not understand that the gates all face each other and are always open. Nothing is excluded. So as in all, almost all koans, what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the step that we each have to take in our life to see how the Dharma is present in this moment, particularly in this moment of separation and suffering. How is the Dharma present in the thing that, that, you, that matters the most to you, meaning has the most negative reaction to you? How is the Dharma present in your reaction to a politician? Or, you know, fill in the blank. Well, the thing that makes your teeth go like that. You know, how is the Dharma present in that? When you express that, how do you leave nothing out? And please note, I'm not saying don't feel that way. Actually, just the opposite. So the verse to this koan, the, the devices presented in, this, in these words come directly on. I mean, Chacho's answering the question, as always, directly, without any gap, any space. It's all there. The adamantine eye is totally free of dust. 
east, west, south, north, the gates face each other. An endless round of hammer blows could not smash them open. You know, the gates we all have are usually seen as barriers. They're stopping points. And that's the usual way that we view things that causes pain, that causes, creates, you know, puts us into a turtle shell. And to enter into the heart of practice, to enter into the heart of this koan and to realize your life within this koan is to commit into taking refuge in the, in the barrier gates. You don't have to have practiced 30 years and have some great enlightenment, whatever the heck that means, to see into this koan. Understanding it is not that difficult, but to see into this koan, you have to see how it lives in your life. It's not about the words on the paper. It's, the koan is not about what I'm talking about here. It's about you and your life. And so what about these gates? I mean, we all have them. This is the line. There's a sign on the gate, and it says no. You could say no in a lot of different ways. Maybe, I'll think about it. Could be tomorrow. I'm sorry. I can't. And on we could go from there. You know, reflexively, reflexively, we become small and contracted in the face of what we feel opposes us. So as soon as there's opposition, obviously, there's two things. And, you know, we can see two things. I was trying to point at this in the opening talk of Sashin when I talked about being on the farm the morning before Eho and I came down and just looking at the mountains and the, the trees, particularly the trees, because I have a love affair with trees. And I've been reading the latest scientific research on trees, how this in a way is old news, but it's just becoming more and more confirmed you know, the trees are all connected at a microscopic level in a forest. And there's more to this than I'm saying generally, because uh, it's species and different ecology is complex, so complex, it's only now we're beginning to realize when you look with a microscope at the soil and the forest, what you see is there's only one tree, really. And how, so for example, when one species of tree begins to die, another species collectively, will feed it nutrients microscopically. And they say, trees aren't intelligent. That's more intelligent than we are often. We don't seem to get that. Let's cut food stamps some more. Anyway, (laughs) where was I going with that? Just the sense of the intimacy of that and the the wholeheartedness of that of being home there. 
and thinking now I'm going to go to the city and that will be my home for two weeks. And it needs to be my home. And it is my home. But it's a totally different way of experiencing home. So we become small and contracted in the face of what we feel opposes us. Each time I come to Sashin or here the first night, I don't sleep well. Sometimes I hardly sleep at all. And I get up and I'm grumpy. I don't do well when I don't have enough sleep. I'm really a grumpy puss. And and I know this, so I kind of try not to interact with anybody. (laughs) Again, I was bringing up something. Uh, I got up the other day in my back home and uh, staggered out of the bedroom to go to the bathroom. And my son, who's a physician and was up early and is dressed and ready to go out the door, and he comes up to me and he starts talking to me about what needs to be done later in the day. And he's talking to me, and I'm I'm got a hand on the wall, and I'm just there, a hand on the wall. The wall is the key part. <laughs> and he stops in mid-sentence. And he looks at me, he says, I'll call you later. <laughs> and, you know, that, that space that we're in, you know, there's, in that little interaction, there's me. I was aware of what I was, and I was doing my best on the wall to hear, even though I knew I couldn't process anything. My brain was not yet awake. And his sensitivity to that, he, you know, which is no big deal in one sense, But in another sense, he's busy as hell. He's got to get out the door. He's got to get all his tasks done, which are immense and long and important. And, oh, okay. Not a good time for Dad. (laughs) And he knows. He knows. I don't do well. (laughs) Anyway, just the sensitivity to that, the challenge, the view of ourselves, the view of others, the challenges of how we are and who we are, the gates. And taking refuge in the three treasures invites us to consider how what is painfully present before us is an invitation to open. To consider what our actual bodhisattva power is. And that is so difficult because when we're small and contracted, the world is that. That's all that we are experiencing and maybe can experience in that moment. But still, there can be an awareness that we, it, this, are so much more than my contraction. So much more. It's often fear, but not always fear. Sometimes it's just circumstance. And, and that's the refuge of the three treasures. To step towards the gate. To see that the gates are gateless. But that's easy to say. And it's impossible to do until we do it. Until we do it. Usually in these situations, we automatically move to protection, to a subtle defensiveness, to self-preservation, and many infinite ways to do that. Attacking, running, hiding, passivity. Numbness. 
but all of that diminishes us. And it self-perpetuates more of that seemingly fundamental gate. It self-perpetuates it. And it creates ongoing karma of suffering for ourselves and others. And at the time, it may feel like our only option, our only way to survive. But is that true? Is that actually true? So when I'm leaning on the wall, which is a relatively harmless example because I'm not quite awake yet, and my son is talking to me and asking me about this and that, and I'm supposed to respond, and I'm, you know, I'm just doing the best I can. I know I can't respond. I know there's, you know, whatever's going to come out is going to be, oh, okay, I will. And I may or may not even get it. I may have to quote. Who knows? But I'm doing the best I can. And I have to ask myself at such moments when I do protect myself. So suppose I had said to him, because I've seen this happen, I don't usually do it, but maybe once or twice in my life, you know, this is not a good time for me. I'm hardly awake. You know. Am I doing the best I can? Is that the best I can? And most of these dialogues actually take place in our head. They're not with someone else. And my, I have a checking question about these dialogues because it's always about someone else. Well, sometimes it's about me and diminishment, but usually about someone else and critical. But it could also be self-judgment. And my checking question is, is that true? That's a question from Katie Byron's way of working, which is very useful a spiritual teacher. Is that actually, is that thought process, is it actually true that that person always da-da-da-da-da-da-da? Or their intent is, how do I know their intent? You never know another person's intent. You don't hardly even know your own intent half the time. It's not clear to you. So is that true? And it's, it's a real question in her method there's two questions. Is that true? Is that really true? That's the, the, that puts you up against the wall. What we need to let go of, what we need to open up to, is behind, is that true? So that our adamantine eye is totally free of dust. So we can see past truth and falsehood. Our endless round of hammer blows could not smash open what stands before us. Why not? Why can't we smash open these gates? Think about that. Why can't you just smash them open with any of our defense mechanisms? Well, the gates are self-created. They don't actually exist. We have carefully constructed them out of nothing. The barriers that appear before us are the measure of our lack of intimacy. The measure of separation from what is. It's custom-made. We've fashioned it. It's, you know... You know the, the website, I think it's Etsy, 
you know, that at least used to make anything for you custom-made, you've done that for yourself. And it can't be smashed by self-centered manipulation. It doesn't exist. It's not there. We have to perpetuate it. We have to continually perpetuate it. So if you look at the person in your immediate life who most presses your buttons, think about how you constantly perpetuate that thought process of how they most press your buttons. And ask yourself next time, is that true? Are there other possibilities? What is their perspective? How can I, you know, I spoke of taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. How can I turn this towards the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha? I actually, you know, it's interesting. The way I look at this practice is I actually don't care what their intent is. It actually doesn't matter to me. I mean, I have to be aware of it if it's that obvious, but it's not important. My, my practice is to do the best I can, which is variable as a human being with my own shit, of simply trying to respond in as dharmically a supportive way to them, whatever that is in my imagination and life, whatever that is. And that covers the whole spectrum, but the intent is always that. I mean, the responses cover the whole spectrum. Could be a harder response or a softer response, but where that's coming from is to the best of my ability in that moment. Sometimes it's my hand on the wall mumbling something. Sometimes it's a loving gesture. Sometimes it's something else. No, you can't have ice cream. Dido's verse. North of the capital, south of the capital. The peaceful dwelling is not yet, is not a place of yin or yang. Let me read it again. North of the capital, south of the capital. The peaceful dwelling is not a place of yin, yin or yang. Where is this peaceful dwelling place? Well, to take us right into the koan, Ango's coming. <laughs> Right, the end of this session, it's really here already, but, and of course, we may know what ango means, right? What does it mean? Everybody here? Peaceful dwelling. So, where is ango? It's not a place of this or that. And how does that come down to practice? Is that true? Is that thought really, really true? Is it holding the whole thing? Or is it just pointing at me or pointing at that person? How can I in this moment hold the whole thing? Well, you may not know. You just may be doing your clumsy best. But the thought already opens wide the door and addresses the suffering of the moment in you, which has consequences, karma, which can only be helpful. You have power. Nobody ultimately, ultimately has power over you. Ultimately. There are consequences to your actions. 
but ultimately no one. So no one ultimately can make you suffer. No one can make you a stranger in your own place. Only you can do that. So where do you find your gates? How will you find the freedom to live within these barriers? So you're not smashing them open. Because you're seeing right through them. What barriers are we talking about? Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.